Welcome to the People's Countryside podcast. Thanks for being with us. We will debate three important environmental issues per episode with a special guest. And we'll be dealing with serious world-scale problems. We approach each question in an open and friendly manner, as though we're sat together in a pub talking with friends. Our ultimate aim is to take this idea on stage in front of a live audience as the people's countryside, live and unscripted. So sit back and listen as the conversation unfolds. And remember, you can find us on Facebook and Twitter where you can share a question you'd like us to discuss and also find out more about our wider work at thepeoplescountryside.co.uk. Okay, this is podcast two of the People's Countryside podcast, and we're back with you. Uh, I'm Stuart the World Man Mabbot, and this is... Hi, I'm William Manclo, um, co-host, obviously. And we're recording this again in the World Man's Cave, and we are going to be exploring three strong, hard questions that face us in the environment at the moment and uh, we've got a guest but um, William we're hoping to take this on the stage to a live audience we are indeed yes that's that's our ultimate goal isn't it to do it in front of a live audience and then there'll be a lot of audience participation and the questions will probably most likely come from the audience as well won't they Stuart so that's the idea this is where we want to, this is where we really want to take this yeah live and unscripted and uh, we're hoping to collaborate with a, a theatre and I've got the North Wall in Summertown in mind because they do something similar to this yep. so uh, we'll keep you posted anyway our guest today is Martin Gibson hello Stuart hello William hello everyone else and uh, you're from Earthly Gains I'm from Earthly Gains a company that helps businesses to realize that if they do things right by the environment it's good for their business as well Okay, now William, uh, you've set the first question we're going to debate today, and do you want to read it out? Certainly shall, you can hear the rustle of the paper. It's all very high tech here. Um, so yeah, the first the question I came up with uh, for this week's podcast is, how aware are we of our carbon footprint and what impact it has on the world? How aware are we each of our carbon impact? How aware carbon. are you? Um, Probably not as aware of it as I probably should be. I mean, I, I don't own a car. I walk a lot. I walk and cycle a lot. However, I do quite a few miles flying. Um, but I've never been really, so that's really my, my sort of level of awareness. But I was talking about this with my wife the other day and how it's not just what you do, it's also what you consume, what you purchase, what is the, what are the, what is the carbon footprint of your the food you eat? Yeah. The, the processes behind the, what exactly, you consume. Yes, yes, and how aware can we be as well? And how translucent is a lot of this 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 shipping, for example? Martin, when you read that question, what was your feeling? Well, I thought that first of all, 
15, 20 years ago, no one would know at all what the carbon footprint is. Now you go into a business meeting and there's a bottle of water saying we're looking after our carbon footprint. So, so awareness has greatly increased, but it's only increased to a certain level and some people probably have no idea. And I was thinking, so how do you sort of look at your own carbon footprint? And I reckon there are three aspects to it. There's, we live in the Western world in a a, a group of systems that use a lot of carbon on our behalf. If I go to the John Radcliffe Hospital up the road, that has huge carbon use, which is kind of part of mine because I go there occasionally, you know, or, or so, uh, and all the transport systems and all those. So we all have a, a, a part of that. And then I'd agree entirely with William. It's what you consume is a huge amount. And uh, I'll maybe talk a bit later about that when mm. we talk about one of the other questions. Mm. But so th there's those two elements and then there's your direct carbon use and I think m many people have some idea of that but I'm still amazed that even environmental graduates I've spoken to don't sort of realize that actually you know you get up in the morning your hot water goes on in the winter you're burning carbon uh, mm. you're creating carbon you're burning things and making emissions so I'd say everyone has a very patchy idea and I would suggest that people need to look at they're big use. So William, it's you. It's flying, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Does, does it go? Does it go almost deeper than that? It's almost that you. You need to be aware of it to to and 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 be aware of exactly what uses carbon. So, for example, what creates a carbon? Your carbon footprint. So, when you're on your mobile phone, you're accessing the internet or the accessing Google, doing some something, Facebook or anything like that. That's going to be part of your carbon footprint. Yeah. Because somewhere there's got to be a server which is providing that information, which has obviously got to be powered by electricity, and it's also going to be continuously on or dormant at least, so it's ready to be there. There's systems and redundant systems that are ready there for you for you to pick up and yeah, to, yeah. to use basically. I've asked on uh, the radio show that uh, I do uh, one question to a, uh, an interviewee um, <clears throat> about how we consume news. Because people, uh, there's less newspapers sold now. So people say, oh, well, I, I read my news on my phone digitally. But is that any better? Because you've got all the metals and the, and the stuff mm. in, the, in the infrastructure yeah. well, to I've read got, that. I've certainly got the impression that, and I've got a friend who has worked in this, <clears throat> this area, or at least um, consult, been a consultant for this type of area. And he said that actually newspapers are better for the environment than somebody actually reading it off of their iPad mm. because of the whole thing of dormant yeah. um, servers wet, ready and waiting and how much carbon is produced just mm. to have those ready rather than it being a few thousand trees that are probably going to be regrown, chopped down and, re and reused and potentially newspapers quite often reuse any way of it's recycled correctly so mm. maybe that's another way of looking at it potentially. What do you think? Yeah, I, I would agree that uh, you, it's not always easy, and I think that's why people have difficulty. So, uh, and if you look at, say, the carbon footprint of your mobile phone or your tablet or whatever, uh, you can say that the systems underpinning that are moving towards being carbon neutral. It'll probably take them another 30 or 40 years, but we can generate electricity in almost carbon neutral way. We're doing more and more of it, but it's not fast enough to make a difference yet. Um, so we need to speed that up and I, I'm encouraged by the fact that governments have recognised or most governments have recognised that you need to decarbonise the systems that we run and then it will be much easier for all of us to be carbon neutral. 
uh, at the moment, it's very hard to choose what systems you use and say, well, I use this because it's less carbon intensive. Um, you can make some choices, but others are beyond our control at the moment. You can influence, though. So there's things you can do directly and there's things you can influence. And you can let people know and communicate and say, actually, I'm not happy with this. Can you change it? Like? Well, like, uh, I, I do it with just with things like, uh, you get junk mail and things like that. Well, you send them back, say, I don't accept junk mail. It has a, an environmental footprint that I find unacceptable. And okay, most of that's paper, but a lot of it's carbon because it's, you're moving bulk materials, so it's bound to be carbon. Um, if you have uh, any interaction you have with anything you purchase, you can complain or complain in a nice way and just say, actually, you know, the packaging on this, which has a carbon footprint as well as the, um, the things we hear about plastic at the moment. We know about that now. You can write and say, actually, I don't want this. Uh, I'd like to buy your product, but I don't want this. And say it in a nice way, and people will start to take notice. But it does take time. These culture changes and system changes can be very, very long term. Sometimes, though, when they do happen, they happen very quickly. I was just thinking of the culture change in particular. So you, you mentioned the plastic, plastic, uh, single plastic use. That's obviously that ties in with your carbon footprint quite quite massively, yeah. doesn't it? So it, that seems to have that seems to be turning at least. That seems to be slow. That, that there seems to be a quite a change in people's use of plastic, especially single use. Uh, it may, may not be happening fast enough, but it's, there seems to be something yeah. going on there, doesn't there? Yeah. Okay, when I read that question, uh, it was the day after I actually attended the Manchester uh, Carbon Conference. And uh, it, it was a little bit of a process by, by the local council. But a lot of the, what I heard there, and I'll summarise it where I can, it related to this. And they were talking very much is reducing our carbon footprint is a, a mass behavioural change. Yeah, um, and uh, they were actually saying that there's um, a move to seriously reduce our carbon footprint by two thousand uh, and fifty. But uh, the council was saying uh, that the industrial revolution started in Manchester, and that they also wanted to start the carbon revolution. And uh, what they were saying was they wanted to hit these targets by 2039. Now, um, one person in the audience, uh, they, we, they showed us the, uh, the figures. And by 2039, they wanted it to Manchester to be a carbon sink. Right. Okay. It's a great and, aspiration. And one person in the audience raised a very good point. Loads of carbon going by now. <laughs> um, made a very good point and that was there's an awful lot of building going on in Manchester and like anywhere and they questioned how much of it was uh, being built in a in an economical way heat wise yeah. you know um, and the council couldn't answer that no. now every single new building needs to be carbon neutral where possible but also there's a even no matter how many buildings we build now that are carbon neutral, we've got gazillions of buildings already that are, yeah. you know, uh, that, that need to be converted. Um, drafty, aren't they? Some drafty and old and... Exactly. Yeah, sort of thing. And, uh, and the, the council at the, uh, Manchester was saying how it's being calculated is uh, each country in the world are being given a target for, for hitting by two th 2050. 
and what we consider third world countries because they're a little bit behind they're being allowed to take a little bit longer so they can catch up so we have to do it a little bit quicker so it balances out and then once the country has been allotted its budget as it were it's then spread amongst the small the smaller areas like the cities so once the uh, Manchester is being given its allotted amount per year it can use uh, that's, that, that's what it works to. But somebody actually said that how is our consumption actually measured? Because uh, the, the council might say, oh yeah, we're, we're being, being very efficient with, with car our carbon uh, exports and stuff. But these buildings that are going up, they're, they're using materials that are part of somebody else's allotted amount so some of the bricks and stuff come from Kings Lynn now Manchester itself might actually use up an entire other cities <laughs> by and why it you so how do you measure your own carbon footprint uh, well I, I would agree it's a very complex area um, and you can measure the embedded carbon in things that you consume so it is possible to do that uh, putting it by geographical area I I see can be very mm. complex and, and the UK has been leading in carbon reduction uh, for the last 25 years or so and our carbon emissions in the UK have gone down but our consumption of things with carbon embedded in other countries has gone up so actually we are doing well our, in our direct carbon but our sort of imported carbon is is still pretty awful so uh, it's a very complex area um, I, I guess it will be something that will be worked on over time um, and uh, I don't think there's a, a quick answer to it but the awareness helps but uh, those figures I saw even if they were aiming at 2050 not 2039 there was a serious cliff edge we're yeah. facing and even if we achieve that, is that going to be quick enough? Well, we're sitting here in uh, probably the greatest uh, heat wave ever in the UK, um, certainly very close to it. And it's not just the UK, it's all across large swathes of the Northern Hemisphere. Um, uh, if this kind of thing happens uh, regularly, then no, it probably we're nowhere near quick enough. Uh, the uh, long-term consequences of this kind of heat uh, will release more carbon from uh, uh, from uh, things like like the methane um, in uh, underground in Siberia and the like. Uh, it will also mean that uh, trees in our area and uh, other plants absorb less carbon during the summer. So it's a, a nasty, vicious cycle if we don't get hold of it. Uh, but I like to be optimistic. I think we're making strides, and uh, I think as long as we realise that we need to do something uh, and all work towards it, I'm sure that it can be done. But it's not going to be easy, and it's not going to be cheap. Okay, this is quite a meaty question, so I just want to uh, end it by my, my, uh, one last statement. When I was at the Manchester conference, they were talking about, I think it was Norway, uh, within 10 years, Norway wants to have their entire fleet of aeroplanes to be electric. And William, you uh, question that. Is that is that possible? What are electric planes? How are they going to work? Aren't they going to trip over the leads? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 
Yeah, it's going to be going to be interesting. I suppose it'll have to one of those. You've got a coiled cable here. It's going to have to have one of those coiled cables so it springs back. Yeah. But in, in all seriousness, uh, I wonder if we're that close to electric planes and what sort of range they have. Because there is within if you have an electric car, there is a thing called range anxiety, which is basically, do you think you're going to be able to do your entire trip without running out of without without of charge? So you could be you get half, we get there and not get back again. So. It's, it's, it's a very commendable thing so I'd be keeping my eyes open on them and also the fact that I fly a lot and also ironically fly quite a lot by Norwegian because I fly up to Finland quite often and that's how I normally get there so I, I would imagine they probably start from their short haul shorter shorter journeys they do quite a few short haul journeys because they're a budget airline Norway, Norwegian so um, it all depends on where the electricity is coming from, how good that is. Um, there are lots of other things to do with batteries that I'm sure can be worked through. Mm -hmm. But you need a non-carbon emitting source of electricity to charge the batteries. Uh, we're getting there, but we're still a long way off. Okay, question two, and I think this baby's mine. Um, uh, th those that complain and criticise about the impact man is having on the environment lack the ability and knowledge to create an alternative. Is this true? So those who criticise, they're not necessarily doing anything, they're just sat there moaning about it. So, um, or is that part of the process? You know, uh, so people who sit and complain about the impact man is having, lack the ability and knowledge to create an alternative. Is this true? Somebody said that to me on the train the other day, so... Uh, I, I don't think, I don't think... I don't think it necessarily is true. I think it is that you think that your 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 contribution is so small that why should I bother? You know, why should I bother recycling? Well, I've got a reusable water bottle here rather than buying countless amounts of plastic bottles. What difference does that one thing make when you think about the larger industries of the world? You know, we were just talking about carbon footprint. You think about the, the huge power stations in the world, the, 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 how much pollution they're putting into the atmosphere compared to what my little bottle does. And I think maybe that is why people might, they, can, they, they might complain about it being very hot and the weather being the way it is now and that may be potentially linked to, to um, global warming. And it's like, oh, well, the government should do something, but all that's something that I can't do anything because I'm only, I'm only one person. But you really can make a difference, even if it's that small, that small, tiny difference. If everybody did that, then it would make a difference, right? Different choices, different decisions. What do you think? Yeah, well, I, I think that when I look at something like this, I look in two ways. Uh, people moan and people complain. And the difference I say is people moan. They're talking about generic things, uh, getting it off their chest, but they often moan to people who can do nothing about it. Uh, <laughs> whereas if you go on from that and then start to complain to people who can make a difference and try and influence them, uh, then I think you can actually do something. Uh, and these are really complex problems. I mean, just look at the systems in which we live in the Western world. They are highly complex. You, No one is going to be able to understand all of them. We can all understand our little bit, but we can influence others and we can question others and complain to others and say, don't you think it would be a good idea if? Um, just generic moaning isn't going to help um, and uh, hopefully people will then come up with new ideas. Uh, none of us are creative all the time, some of us are creative some of the time. Uh, 
you know, we might, someone might come up with a great idea uh, after moaning for a long time. So I think it is part of the process. I'm just, think, I'm just going to say that. Do you think also the that warm that one small person who feels that they they don't have that impact? Like you said, there's a difference between moaning and complaining. So putting pressure on larger corporations, larger businesses by saying, I'm not going to use your product because of this issue, therefore I'm going to use somebody else's. So the small thing for me is that I will go to someone like Pret for a coffee or Costa for a coffee now. Because like if you take my takeaway mug there, my reusable mug, yeah. you get a discount, whereas other places don't do that. So maybe it should be a case of, I really want to use your service, but however, I'm not going to because I've got an incentive to go elsewhere. I'm incentivized to go elsewhere. Is that part of it, do you think? I think it is. Uh, I think helping people to do it differently and giving them incentives uh, is very useful. And, and there's, I don't know how many of you have heard of it, but there's uh, nudge theory about if you make it easy for people to do the right thing, they're more likely to do it. It's been done in insurance, for example, and, and in pensions. If you give someone the right pension option, uh, then they're more likely to take up a pension, a good pension that will do well for them. Uh, so give people the right options and they will usually adopt it. Uh, and I think a lot of companies are trying to do the right thing. I know they're also trying to uh, meet shareholder needs and do what they need to stay in business and they don't always see the benefits, but uh, we can help them. But we're all to blame, so uh, we all have a part to play in doing things better. Do you think uh, we're too motivated in only making a change if it's uh, financially beneficial? Or do you think there's a, a growing mass of enough people that will do it regardless of uh, the profit margin? I think there is, yeah. I mean, I, that, I gave, that, gave that as an example, but I also would say that it's, uh, I tr we, we always try, me and my wife, always trying to reuse as much of what we get as possible. So any bags we get, we can use for a, a little bit, little bag at home. So we get given a carrier bag that can then be reused a second time. And I know it's going to be, end up, mostly end up in incineration or landfill eventually, but at least it's going to be used for the second time. Or if we're on a bus, we see a newspaper there, we'll probably go and use that to line our, food caddy or something like that it's yeah. another use a second use at least of something and if you get a jar of gherkins particularly that that can be washed out and we could be you reuse sex a countless amount of times for things like storing other 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 food in like pasta or something like that it's just reusing that that material again and that that kind of goes back to the whole carbon footprint thing yeah again, doesn't it right from right at the start but yeah anything else on that one i think that's a good question Okay, so this is Martin. You slightly changed it from uh, the original uh, that you originally said, is diversity good for us? But uh, the question you've set is, uh, how does diversity affect us? You've changed it. So explain that. How does diversity affect us? Uh, right. Uh, well, I changed it because I forgot what I first said. So <laughs> sorry about that. Uh, but how does diversity affect us? Well, often, um, as I say, I, I tend to work mainly with businesses. And when you think of diversity at the moment, you tend to think of human diversity. So you think of diversity on boards. There's not enough women. There's not enough people from different ethnicities in, on boards. Um, uh, and there's quite good evidence, uh, if you look at it from a financial point of view, that if you have a more diverse board, uh, in terms of the people on it, then you are more likely to be successful in the long term. But I was really thinking 
the same thing applies to biodiversity. So biodiversity is the number of species and the mix of species we have. Uh, and, and often uh, when you have a very healthy environment, you will have a huge mix of species and it will be high biodiversity. Um, and there's a lot of work going on recently talking about ecosystem services, which is linked to this. So we all require healthy ecosystems to support us. We eat food, our, a lot of our materials come from the ecosystems, um, and we get rid of waste and we expect the ecosystems to devour the waste and to reuse it a lot of the time. So, so we all need ecosystems uh, for our own well-being. So there's a real um, personal interest for all of us in that. Uh, but at the same time, because there are so many of us and we're profligate in the way we live and we we accept stupid systems and we do things the simple way and I'm no better than <coughs> anyone else, um, we've wiped we are in danger of wiping out loads of species and we have greatly reduced biodiversity globally. Uh, and uh, so, yes, diversity is good for us and how does it affect us? Well, on, on everyday life, we need the ecosystem to, to supply us with things. But I was thinking, actually, there's something that's much closer to home for all of this on biodiversity. Uh, and that is your own body. Um, you have, I've forgotten how many hundreds of thousands or hundreds of millions of bacteria in your gut. Um, and uh, the Western world, we have managed to generally reduce our, the biodiversity of our gut. And that leads often to some of the Western health problems that we have. Uh, I recently was looking at some of the work of Dr. Tim Spector from King's College, who's been talking about the need uh, for biodiversity in our gut and how much better for us it is. So although there's the outside concept of the ecosystem, there's this very localized part that really affects us on biodiversity and it's all part of the same continuum. How would you, how would you increase the biodiversity of you then? How do you do that? Right, you eat a wide range of foods, less processed foods, uh, whole foods, um, eat live foods as well so things like live cheeses and uh, mm. uh, and the like uh, are very I good like yogurts and live like yogurts and things and yeah yogurt, good yeah. cheese and that um, <laughs> and uh, we, we think of bacteria we've been brought up to think of bacteria as bad for us you know mm. oh kills 99% of all germs or, or whatever well actually a tiny percentage of bacteria are bad for us most of them are, are either benign or beneficial yeah. Uh, so I think we need to rethink the way we <laughs> think about bacteria and say, okay, there are some bacteria we don't want to come into contact with, but most of them are good for us and they work together with us. We are a symbiotic being, whether we like it or not. Um, and yeah, so lots of health foods, uh, lots of uh, unprocessed food and food with live bacteria in it uh, will help you. I was going to say, if there's no bacteria in the world, then nothing, there, there would be dead matter everywhere because bacteria break everything yeah. down don't they so it's 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 yeah only the small minority of bacteria is bad for us yeah. isn't it yeah. very very small minority uh, and a bit like weeds they're only bad for you in the wrong place <laughs> yeah i like that i like that idea uh, okay then so it is this diversity thing uh, we're shying away from it are we limiting the biodiversity around us because we don't see ourselves as part of nature or are we part of nature does it come back to awareness again? To actually even be aware that there's biodiversity around you. That actually it's good to have a hundred 
flower types of flower outside in your back garden. It's good to have countless amounts of different insects and moths, and because you get all the different insects and moths, and it builds up the it builds up the entire food chain. There's all these different different insects. You get all these different small smaller animals and bigger. You know, it, it all feeds into that, doesn't it? Is it so is it goes does it go back to awareness of biodiversity? Well, yeah, there's awareness, but do we see ourselves? Is seeing ourselves as different to nature outside of nature? Is that also part of the problem? That's what I'm getting at. Not just awareness. Yeah, I think for a lot of people, they don't realise their connection to to nature. Uh, You know, if you live in a city, you don't often see it. It doesn't seem to impinge on you directly. So I'm sure there are a lot of people where where that is part of the issue. Um, But I, I think we also, probably all of us, don't quite understand our impact on nature even if we know we have one so uh, I was giving this uh, a bit of thought and thinking well uh, you know we all affect nature in in the things that we buy I mean we were talking about this earlier you know that when you purchase food and things and when you purchase anything if you think about where that's come from that's probably had some impact on nature food obviously has um, but then the spaces that we work in and we develop and we change, uh, I, I get um, amazed by people who have lawns who then spend lots of money on chemicals to kill everything but the grass in the lawn. I think, well, why do you do that? Well, what benefit is there for having just grass in a lawn? You can have a nice green thing to walk on that can be much more diverse. I just don't understand why people would want just grass, unless you're playing cricket on it or something, then, then, that's a, then that I'll accept as a good reason. But generally, you just think, uh, why, you know, why, why, would you need, why would you need to do that? And, and so I think, yeah, we don't understand quite how we uh, affect the environment, uh, that diversity, uh, because we don't realise our connection to nature. Are we, uh, have we gone too far with being creatures of habit? Is this what we're talking about, breaking habits? I think we are creatures of creatures of habit. Have we gone too far with that? Well, I don't think we've... I think we've always been creatures. I'm not necessarily going too far. But I think there's also this thing about... And like you said, if anybody lives in the city, you're only... Sometimes your only interaction with the outside world, let alone nature, is getting out of your front door, walking to the car, and doing exactly the same thing when you get to the office. You're not doing anything else, mm. or you're going to the supermarket. Or you're going from one place. You're going from one place to the next. You're not really seeing what's around you. Right, there's something that just popped into my head that my um, my great aunt once said when she said that I she she was accused of driving too slowly, and she said, "Well, I, if I drive quietly faster, I wouldn't be able to see the grass." So it's almost like actually just slowing down and giving yourself time to be out there and being aware that you 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 it's okay to be out there. It's okay to just go out and just go for a walk. I mean, I was brought up like I was brought up this way. I was brought up just to go out for a walk. My mum used to take us out for walks all the time to net into the local nature reserve up to Shotover and down the river. And I was we were continuously aware of it. Maybe it is habit. Maybe it is it does come from maybe your parents or from your childhood potentially I don't that's it's my I'm talking from my own experience I feel okay Martin your original question is diversity good for us I'll throw that one at you do do you think uh, diversity is fundamentally good for us I I think it's essential and I think the more we uh, reduce diversity the more we will see the impact of it Uh, well I noticed Earlier this year, I was out cycling on the weekend, and, and I was going past what looked like very nice green, at that time of year, <laughs> it was verdant fields, 
but they were all monocultures so great for the efficiency of food production because there's so many of us farmers have to produce food efficiently uh, to feed us all um, but I suddenly thought actually we've knocked out a lot of the diversity and we don't know what we've lost often until it's too late uh, or we may never know uh, but when you look at things like how many drugs come from uh, by from nature mm. um, and just our general well-being being in nature uh, which seems to be uh, people are getting more understanding of um, yeah I think there's no doubt that it's good for us uh, and we I think the good news is we can all do something about it we can work to change systems we can uh, help to speak out and in the choices we make every day try and make choices that improve biodiversity it may not always be easy to start with but you can do one or two things that will do it um, and nature is incredibly resilient at the moment uh, and until it becomes we lose all biodiversity or much more nature will continue to be resilient it will bounce back if you've ever been uh, to the forest of Dean that used to be a phenomenally industrial area in the late 1880s uh, you wouldn't know it now because nature has come back it's probably come back differently it might not be as diverse it might be quite different but it has come back so there is, there is good news out there um, and we still have time to do something but we need to do it the same goes from the river thames as well that was part as i understand it that was actually parts of it were actually dead yeah there was nothing in the, especially down towards um <clears throat> towards london direction there was parts of it that literally had no life in it at all but now you can walk down the thames and if you watch if you, i mean every time i go down the thames if i go down there long enough especially beyond sanford um i'll see uh, two or three heron yeah. maybe a couple of, maybe at least one kingfisher which again says that the high predators there means that everything else is the foundations are underneath it so the biodiversity is much better okay we're coming to the end of this uh, second the people's countryside podcast someone's celebrating that fact those horns always go off at good times anyway <laughs> um we are going to be recording two more of these podcasts one with somebody from oxford university that we haven't quite lined up yet and another one we're going to record in September with David Mulholland. And uh, so listen out for those. On Saturday, we're going to be filming the first two scenes of the next People's Countryside film. Yep. Um, and that's about the old Wickham line. Do you want to explain more about that? Yeah, the, what particularly about the t first two scenes. Yeah, well, about the Wickham line and the first two scenes, both. Yeah, so... As many of you might know, we did actually do a um, crowdfunder back, I know, when was it? Was it in May? March, April. March, April. It, it seems like a long time ago. Mm. Um, so that didn't come to fruition, unfortunately, but we are going to be filming the first two scenes of the um, video that we're going to be doing for uh, the Wickham Railway Line. And particularly, we're going to be around the, um, the Horsepath um, Railway Tunnel, um, or the old issues horsepower thrower tunnel, which is now the one of the most important backed hibernaculum in the, the UK. The UK, definitely, yeah. in, obviously, definitely in Oxfordshire. Um, but yeah, the first of the two scenes we're going to be doing is just is exploring how much uh, horsepower driftway has changed over the, the past, maybe even past century or so. How that's changed from being very rural to being a very um, 
lot more built up area and then it's doing the juxtaposition of going to horse path and then showing how a very much an industrial place which was a railway um, with its steam trains going through there latterly diesel trains have now has now transformed into a very much of a green space um, and mm. more biodiversity mm. <laughs> so yeah that's 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 the that's the purpose of those two films isn't so it? we're going to be doing those two films the idea of this podcast is to do a series of four and then take it in front of a live audience with live and unscripted what we're planning is also a photographic exhibition merging williams photographs and my words um, we've already we, we had a meeting on uh, this this week and uh, we've we'd already started bouncing to get i ideas together and uh, there were some good ideas there already mm. wasn't there just yeah. just just me me having me playing with my photos and it's what I love doing anyway and you were there just mm. kind of chipping in your ideas and it, mm. it just we've already got something going there haven't we yeah exactly so uh, there's films there's podcasts there's live performances there's exhibitions uh, yeah so yeah. Uh, all off the back of the people's countryside so we'll be with you again soon so for me Stuart the Wild Man Mabbit me, William Manclay. And our guest? Martin Gibson. Uh, thanks for listening and we will be with you soon. 